Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. This is Vernon Oaks. So glad to be here this morning. We've got some great rain outside in Washington, D.C. And the traffic wasn't bad. So I was amazed and surprised and pleased. I'm also ama- uh, amazed and pleased that we have Melissa Hoover on the line with us this morning. And on to Nguyen. I hope I pronounced that right. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. Good morning. How are you guys doing? We're great. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Where are you this morning? And thanks so much. Where where are you located? I'm in New York City. This is Antu. And oh, sorry, Melissa. Go ahead. Um, I'm. uh, This is Antu. I'm based in New York City, where it's also a lovely rainy day as well. And Melissa. And uh, I'm based in Oakland, California, uh, in in our main office. Uh, it's a little early for me in the morning, but I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you. It's 7.30 out there. <laughs> That's right. Fantastic. Glad you all could join us this morning. I really like a, a piece that's in the book, uh, Cities Building Wealth, that was a book that was created by Democracy Collaborative. Are you all familiar with that book? Yes. And it talks about a Christina who is a maid and she was making $7 an hour and they created a worker cooperative and she went from $7 an hour to $20 an hour. Is that what you all experience when people start a worker cooperative? Well, I think that's the the best case scenario, right? Is that um, a co-op and that's the reason people start co-ops is so that they can have more control over their work life, create jobs and small businesses for themselves. And then, you know, as they succeed, they can hang on to more of the profits that they're generating. So, you know, that's a successful and thriving worker co-op example. I think um, I have a little bit of caution in my voice because I think there's a little bit of a perception out there that a worker co-op is like a magic bullet, uh, particularly for low-wage work. And part of the caution I want to express there is that a co-op doesn't automatically turn what's a difficult or low-paid job into a highly paid job, right? You're still going to face a lot of the same issues, but what it does do is create um, an opportunity to improve that job and for folks, like I said, to hold on to more of the profits that they themselves are generating. So we do expect to see worker co-ops increase um, wages and increase flexibility and control over schedules and all of that. Um, but I think we need to be a little bit careful about um, about saying that they're going to turn all $7 an hour jobs into $20 an hour jobs. Oh, no, I like the way it sounds. <laughs> I like the way it sounds. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, and who was speaking then? Oh, sorry. This is Melissa from the oh. Democracy at Work Institute. Okay, Melissa, I just don't hear your, I don't know your voices yet. So if you could tell me who's talking, then that would be helpful. And Melissa, you are the founding director of Democracy 
at Works Institute. Yes, I am. I previously had the honor of serving as the executive director of the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. Right after it was started, I was brought on in a part-time capacity to, you know, help build the organization. And we weren't sure where everything was going. It was a real grassroots initiative that was about 15 years ago. And the Federation, you know, launched through a series of meetings and then finally a sort of a culminating national meeting. And we recruited members and we started growing and, you know, we created a membership organization. And the plan had always been to have an affiliated training institute to offer courses to member owners and, you know, to to help educate new worker owners and co-op developers and just be that sort of uh, connective tissue for worker co-ops outside of the grassroots organization to be sort of an education and training arm. And um, as we were growing our federation, we saw a real change in who was starting worker co-ops and why. Um, where we had seen people starting worker co-ops, you know, sort of in the 70s through the early 90s, mostly as a way um, to sort of create an alternative to opt out of, you know, the mainstream economy. What started happening in the 90s was people who were locked out of jobs, of business ownership, of access to capital, started to create worker co-ops as a way in, um, which is a really different approach and needed different kinds of support. So, as we were conceiving of this training institute, we thought, you know, what what we really need is a strategic driver and an organization that's going to focus on this whole new next generation of worker co-ops and on communities of color who are using worker co-ops as a way to expand their opportunity and access. And so we deepened, I think, the focus on mm-hmm. um, on the Democracy at Work Institute and made a commitment to racial equity and made a commitment to really expanding the model and trying to scale. So we went from modest ambition to, I think, a a little deeper ambition. And I think that the time was right. The people um, around me at the time who saw that and really encouraged it, I think, were pretty visionary. Um, And so here we are with this three years in, almost four years in, um, national you know, training institute and strategic um, scale oriented nonprofit that's affiliated to our membership organization. Well, let me just ask on to if she could tell us what a worker cooperative is. Sure. So a worker cooperative is a business that is democratically controlled and managed by its workers. Um, So workers have a share in the business. They have ownership stake in the business, and they also play a role in managing the business democratically. Democratically owned. owned and controlled. Yes. Okay. When I've normally given a definition, I've just said owned and controlled. So I'll put the democratically and I like that. Okay. How did you guys get involved in this cooperative world? So this is Melissa. I can go first. I started out as a bookkeeper at Inkworks Printing Cooperative here in the Bay Area. I was in my 20s. I needed a job. They needed a bookkeeper. And I was interested in, I was actually most interested in printing and publishing. Um, but I was also interested in the cooperative form. This was in the late 90s, early 2000s. And that was a moment when worker co-ops were beginning to come together in these small regional organizations, local and regional organizations, and have conferences and you know share skills with each other. And so I started going to some of those events, and I'm grateful to the mentors who pulled me in and said, hey, do you want to come to this? Do you want to present? Do you want to be part of this growing community? And um, 
out of that. And I think there are several of us of a, of a generation that got involved at that time, um, right as uh, our national organization was forming and as we were uh, moving forward. So um, I was, you know, I was a member of a worker cooperative first, and then I moved to the Arismendi Association here in the Bay Area as a took some of my bookkeeping skills and my ability to explain stuff um, in sort of common sense terms to members that I had practiced in my job at Inkworks. You know, we all have to understand the financial statements and make decisions together. Um, And that's sort of a a pretty specialized skill, actually, to be able to um, convey financial information to your everyday coworkers who don't have their heads in in the books all the time. And so building on that, I took a job at the Arismendi Association as the as a co-op developer doing some of the training for the Arismendi Cooperatives, which is a chain of cooperatively owned bakeries here in the Bay Area. Very successful co-op development project and very successful businesses. And so uh, as we were expanding the Arismendi Association, I was able to take part in a couple co-op developments of new bakeries, set up their books and finances, um, establish their, you know, capital and borrowing and um, then train the new worker owners in how to run um, the financial aspects of their bakery. So, so I got a deep dive in finances and I, then moved into I got a quick like question for you because you've said this a couple of hmm. times. Are you saying that the the members, the, the owners, the people that work in the bakery, I guess in the front counter or baking, that they all had to know the finances? They had to understand the balance sheet and the profit and loss statement and all of that stuff? Well, they have to have enough familiarity with the finances to be able to make good decisions as members at the general meeting. So um, all of the members have uh, an understanding of the financial reports. So, yeah, the profit and loss statement and the balance sheet. And then they all know some of the basic ratios that a business owner needs to know, your labor to sales ratio, your cost of goods, um, you know, growth year over year. And so as they're making decisions about stocking certain kinds of products or, um, you know, designing their workflow in the you know, on the floor in the bakery, they are working with a knowledge of what the financial impact of that actually is. Melissa, um, you're yeah. telling me that everyday people that may not have a high school degree, may have a high school degree, might have some college, they can learn this stuff? That's right. That is actually, that revelation was the most powerful thing to me as I was getting involved in co-ops because I thought, you know, the way I think about it, you know, we all think about literacy. Anybody can learn to read. Um, and I think of numeracy the same way. Basically, anybody can learn to understand numbers and business and its relationship. And it's so powerful to watch people who think that they hate math or that they don't get business or that they couldn't possibly understand a balance sheet to see them go from that perception of themselves to making informed, savvy business decisions, um, and having fun doing it, you know, really understanding a new language and a new way of thinking about things and doing it with principles and values, right, that are underlying their financial decisions that put themselves as members first and, you know, consider their community in the process. Making informed decisions. I like it. That's right. Well, see, I'm... And I will say that in the Arismendi structure, there's also a finance committee that does the the heavy lifting, you know, on the financial management and um, bookkeeping. So there are structures of specialization within that. It's not. I think sometimes people have a perception that in worker co-ops, everybody's deciding about every last little thing. And that's just not true. A business can't grow and scale that way. So you specialize into departments and committees um, that have primary responsibility. And those are the folks who, um, you know, get a deeper kind of um, knowledge and understanding. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. I I taught math. Okay, so I'm I'm coming out of. I used to love when the light would come on, and mostly I would teach algebra to students at the college level that thought that they could not learn math. And when they got it, that light would come on. Uh-huh. It was so rewarding. So yes, I know that people can learn it numeracy, but most people out there and perhaps in this audience don't know that you can learn. And it could be fun and exciting. Right. Yes, right. I agree. We got to take our first break. <laughs> Melissa Hoover and on to Nguyen uh, from the Democracy at Work Institute. Uh, we'll be right back to talk more about the worker cooperatives. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOF, 95.9 FM. Information is power. That's why the National Cooperative Bank is is sponsoring this program, to give you the information you need to start a cooperative or to join a co-op and what you can expect. And today, talking about worker cooperatives, democratically owned and controlled businesses, only controlled by the employees. We have Melissa Hoover and Onto Newing. Melissa's in Oakland and Onto is in New York. So can you all tell me about the growth in worker cooperatives, the recent growth? Yeah, so we have, um, you know, our institute started in 2013 and we started keeping, we did a baseline survey then and um, we do a state of the sector survey every year to understand how many worker co-ops there are. So from a data perspective, there's about 375, 400 worker co-ops in the country. Um, There are always more starting, so it's a little bit hard to keep track of that number. But we know that about 75 of those started in the last two years and that uh, something like more than half of the extant worker co-ops today have started since the year 2000. So there's just been this phenomenal wave in the last 15 years of growth. Um, And so, for instance, in New York City, which is funding um, worker co-op development through the city council, um, we've seen an explosion of co-ops, I think something like 40 co-ops in the last couple of years. Um, 99% of them started by women of color, um, most of them working in service industries and low-wage work. Um, oh, wait, 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 wait. I don't want to miss this one. 99% <laughs> of the 40 co-ops in New York City are started by women of color. That's I, right. What I heard That's you, right. Oh, I just want to put a little <laughs> emphasis on that. I heard, I had heard that 40% of the new co-ops being formed were people of color. But you're saying in New York, 99% are women of color. And I think that comes from the emphasis on the, you know, the funding there is specifically designed as an intervention, job creation and wealth building strategy for low-income women, uh, low-income people. But, you know, the the nonprofits that are starting co-ops work more with women. And, you know, women's work is undervalued and underpaid and um, often pretty precarious work. So um, it makes sense that people would be starting co-ops to to try and stabilize that and make it better work. Job creation and wealth building. Uh, Everybody out there, if you don't have a job and you want to create some wealth, one way of doing that is starting a worker cooperative. And how would they get a hold of you all if they wanted to start a worker cooperative in this Washington DC area or anywhere in the US? How do they how do they contact you for help? Well, there are a number of ways. We have we actually have folks all around the country. We're a national organization with 11 staff and our staff are in something like six or seven states. So, we have offices everywhere. Um, but our two sort of main centers are in New York City and Oakland. 
And, you know, these days everything's on the Internet, so you can always look us up at uh, our website, www.institute.coop. Um, and typically we we can we run a startup webinar once a month that's sort of startup roadmap. You know, if you're thinking about starting a co-op, come to this, learn the basics, talk to other people who are starting co-ops. We work with a group of peer advisors around the country who actually work in co-ops now and can explain the ins and outs of how that works. That's the DAWN, the Democracy at Work Network of peer advisors. Um, the U.S. Federation's members are also really great at sharing their information. So if you're going to do it yourself, there are a lot of resources you know, to access. I think that we don't really work directly with those folks. We refer them to resources or refer them to a co-op developer in their area because we want to support the on-the-ground work. Is this on to talking? That's Melissa talking. This Melissa, is okay. Melissa, I need you to go back and tell me those web pages again. I didn't get them. Sure. Yeah, um, our website is institute.coop. Okay. Um, the Democracy at Work Network of Peer Advisors, the Dawn Network is dawn.coop. And then the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops is usworker.coop. And then I want to, if, if you don't mind, Vernon, if I could take a minute to talk about something that doesn't get a lot of recognition. Those are ways to start a co-op. Um, but another way of uh, creating cooperative ownership that, that I think people talk about less, but that we're really excited about and it's growing in awareness, um, is converting an existing business to employee ownership. Um, well, well, Melissa, you know, we have, before you do that, I have been in the last two years, I have a property management company, Oaks Management Inc. It's been around for 24 years and the employees have been working with someone from Don for those about a year and a half now to turn it into a worker-owned cooperative. And it's fascinating. So, yes, please talk about that. <laughs> right. So, you know, startups are hard. Uh, they have a pretty high failure rate. They're difficult to get going. They're risky. So when we look at the world of, uh, you know, what's out there and how people might increase their cooperative ownership, um, in addition to startups, we look at existing businesses and we think that converting to cooperatives or employee ownership solves a bunch of problems at once. It, you know, um, it reduces the risk for people who want to own a business to, to take on an existing business and just change the ownership form. So as a, as a means of creating more co-ops, it's already appealing to us and to financiers and um, investors. But I think uh, sort of more to the point, there is a generation of baby boomers that's retiring. Millions and millions of uh, people are facing the closure of the businesses that they work in. Owners are facing a market that's um, saturated in some ways, and so there may not be buyers for their businesses. So those businesses are looking at closing their doors. And when we're, we're talking about businesses in rural areas or um, neighborhoods where there are, those businesses are legacy businesses and they've been around for years and years, if those businesses close their doors, they're not coming back. And so when we sort of look at what the options are, I think it's been underpromoted and sort of un not as well understood as it could be, this potential for selling to employees. It keeps the doors open, it broadens the ownership of the business, and it really ensures that the owner's legacy is preserved. I've had a couple people on the program. We've been on for three and a half years now. I've had a couple people on to talk about this, particular manufacturing businesses. 
And I was amazed at the number because I think of manufacturing as Ford and GM and Boeing, but the smaller, even candy manufacturing companies that have been around a long time. And if they close their doors, the people that work there are going to be out of work. So we had more unemployment. And it's, you know, it's the first thing we should be thinking about with economic development is how do we hold on to what's already there? Because if it goes away, it's going to be very hard to replace. And I have to say, I don't think there's a plan in most industries and most parts of the country and for most business owners um, for what to do. You know, the, the, the bulk of manufacturing in this country is actually smaller enterprises and family-owned companies. We think of GM and Ford, but um, we think of them because there's only a handful of those kinds of examples. But really, the manufacturing base is smaller companies, and we've seen manufacturing actually come back in some places like Western North Carolina because it's custom local manufacturing. So we're seeing sort of a renaissance, new new companies starting or growing because they're meeting local needs, things that can't be offshore, quick turnaround or custom pieces. So that's actually part of our conversion strategy nationally is looking at the kinds of businesses that are providing a real locally based service or product and are not going to be bought by competitors. So we, you know, we don't want them to be bought by competitors. We don't want a strategic sale or consolidation or a competitor buying the business to close its doors or, you know, any of those sort of possibilities that are still going to, you know, in, in the end, lose jobs and lose a community asset. So we think actually manufacturing is a, is a, is ripe for looking at retiring owners and saying, what can we do to keep those businesses here? So does the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives or are you guys, do you all have a plan for or some kind of promotional uh, strategy to get the owners to know that there is an option, that they don't have to just close their door. There's an option for selling their company because it's good for them too. It's good for those baby boomers, which I'm one. And so at right. the Democracy at Work Institute, have you all sort of been working on some plan of letting all of these owners know about this potential? We are, in fact. We have, we have a bunch of different pieces of that plan in the works. I'll talk about a couple. The first is we're convening a national collaborative of technical assistance providers, so those groups around the country um, that help, you know, co-ops and businesses. That national group meets together to talk about a shared strategy, to develop a shared strategy, to share skills, to um, expand, do communications. We figure that it's this is a big enough task that no single organization can do it alone. And so our organizations have come together. There are about 25 members in the Workers to Owners Collaborative. They're everything from, you know, lenders, co-op loan funds, to technical, like co-op developers and technical assistance providers, to lawyers who help finish the transaction. Um, so that group is putting its head together and expanding awareness. And we have a lot of, you know, we're, we have a, a lot of reach. When are they going to the meet? Country. When are they going to meet? Well, they have met already a couple times in person um, to sort of align and do trainings. And then um, the collaborative meets. In fact, later today, I'm going to go to a steering committee. We meet um, virtually. Okay. So... Um, you know, very regularly. And then there are working groups where... Well, before you go yeah. on, Melissa, we'll, we'll come back to that. We have to take our second break, but we'll come back. Okay, so great. Everybody, please don't touch that dial. We'll learn more about worker cooperatives.
Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOM at 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Uh, program is Everything Cooperative. You know, this is sponsored by the National Cooperative Bank, whose mission is to help cooperatives grow by supporting and being an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members placing special emphasis on serving the needs of communities that are economically challenged. So, Melissa, it seems like NCB would be a great partner for Democracy at Work Institute because you're working with low-income communities also. Have you worked with them at all? National Yeah, that's right. I mean, we have had conversations about the Conversions Initiative, and um, I believe that they're working with a couple of the partners in our Workers to Owners Collaborative, but um, I would welcome deeper partnership. I think one of the things we see as a huge need in the conversions field is appropriate financing for the transitions of those businesses, you know, especially as we're, we're working on something we call the Legacy Business Initiative, which is which targets business owners of color, particularly African-American business owners, um, with communications materials and some education about the possibility of, of transitioning their business to employee ownership. And one of the sort of the, the first things that those business owners have told us is that financing a conversion and, you know, meeting the capital needs of the business is going to be their first concern. So, yes, yes, NCB would encourage them to jump into the space of financing cooperative conversions. We think it's the wave of the future. And so when you, when we ended the last segment, you were talking about ways that you can come together and strategically figure out how to get this ownership conversion from baby boomers or folks that have businesses that want to sell them, whether they're African-American owned or anybody that owns them, how to sell these units, how to sell these businesses to the employees. Mm-hmm. And you were saying there were two ways. You mentioned the first way. What's the other way? The second is the one I just brought up. It's the Legacy Business Initiative. So we're working in a few cities around the country. Um, and we're actually partnering with the Urban League on this and city community development to convene you know, key, stay- key stakeholders in a few cities to say it looks like this city is ripe for discussion about converting existing businesses to cooperative ownership. Are you all interested? And we have done a couple convenings um, so far in Miami and in the San Francisco Bay Area. We'll be coming to Washington, D.C. later this month. We'll be in Chicago, Newark, um, and Los Angeles to you know, start the conversation and see what the level of interest is. Because we, we think... There's a need for both a national kind of awareness and communications campaign and then local on-the-ground work and relationship building. It's a new idea, so people need a little bit of time to get used to it. They need to hear it from people they trust and really dig in and explore whether it's right for them. When are you, when are you going to be in D.C.? I knew you were going to ask me that. I cannot remember the exact date. Let me find that, and I'll bring it up. But it will be at the end of uh, the end of this month, I believe. Well, the reason I'm asking is I I want people here to know about it, and I would like to be there. So yes, yeah. Let me let me grab that date, and uh, okay. I'll, I'll I'll bring it up later. Yeah. I was in a meeting at Howard University with Urban League five years or so ago, and they were talking about the state of Black America. Urban League was. So they asked for questions. And I got up and asked, because they were talking about job creation and, of course, unemployment rates and so forth, had they considered co-ops as a method? And I had taught in the business school at, at Howard, 
in the early 90s. So it was amazing that it was in Crampton Auditorium that maybe said 1,700 people or something huge, and it was packed, but it went real quiet. There was nothing. <laughs> and there was no answer. And it was amazing to me that it got to how little people know about co-ops. And I later found out through Jessica Gordon-Imhard that the Urban League back in the day uh, housed a young professional cooperative league. And so they were very involved in the 30s, 40s, and 50s or whenever back in that day was. Uh, but they knew nothing about it now. So I'm glad to hear that you are working with them because that seemed like a great place. Uh, they have a large footprint to promote this cooperative and legacy business owners and others. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, your experience resonates with me. I think it speaks to this cultural shift that's happening right now that we're in the middle of this expansion of the cooperative form, you know, to new communities and to communities who may not have heard of it or may not know that they have a cooperative history. Right. So Jessica's book has done an incredible job of unearthing some of that history. And actually, in a couple places, we've talked to groups after they've invited her in to give a speech about her book. So she said, you know, this is the history of uh, African-American cooperation in the U.S. And they said, well, what can we do now? And so uh, I think that there's a really powerful uncovering of that history that's happening. And then some current, sparking current day interest in like, yeah, why aren't we using this as a you know, community wealth building strategy? But it's a it's a long road. You know, some of our our friends at the Urban League have said we've got to make this concept relevant for our audience. We're going to have to translate it a little bit, and I think that's really real. And mm-hmm. so we we need to be mindful of how different how different groups are going to hear about cooperatives and how it's going to land with them. Well, Jessica Gordon Nimhar's book is called Collective Courage, and you can you know you can get it online, and it's a great read to understand this cooperative model and the history. It's phenomenal. And she's talked on the program a couple of times that when she got started, she didn't know that there was any history. And most people told her there was not. And she just kept uncovering over about 15 years, all of this phenomenal history uh, and the civil rights movement co-op sort of helped it to be what it was. And I got that the civil rights movement either would not have happened without co-ops or it would not have happened the way it happened. had a tremendous influence, including they met in cooperative housing in New York. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. That's right. So what's going on at the city level? What kind of initiatives are going on at the city levels? Well, I'll speak briefly about what sort of some of the recent developments, and then maybe I'll, I'll hand it off to Antu, who can speak about New York City. But I was just in Boston last week with uh, the National League of Cities, um, has a fellowship for city staffers, and some of their fellows in Boston have chosen employee ownership as the focus of their work. And so it looks like the city of Boston is going to implement, in fact, has already implemented some support within their agencies for worker co-op development We know the city of Madison has dedicated $5 million over the next five years to encourage and fund co-op development. And that all grows out of the city of New York, which about three years ago committed um, city council budget to funding worker co-op development as a wealth building and business ownership strategy. Um, And that's where, you know, Antu works and is deeply involved in that ecosystem. So let her say a little bit about that. Sure. Thanks, Melissa. This is Antu. So in New York City, uh, as Melissa spoke, 
the city city council has allocated starting in 2015 um, about five million dollars in the past three years to support worker cooperative development in the city and a lot of our influence is through the successes of worker cooperatives in the past few decades. So the largest worker cooperative in the U.S., which is Cooperative Home Care Associates, it's based in the Bronx and is 98% women, vast majority women of color, really provide a great example and a model of transforming an entire industry, which was home health care, low wage, high exploitation, predominantly gendered work, and showing that worker cooperatives could be a way to help grow uh, community wealth and uh, build better opportunities within within a community, this being the Bronx. So with that as kind of like the as the model of the success story, um, I think that really influenced the city and provided the proof of concept needed to facilitate this funding. Um, and as Melissa had uh, earlier spoken about, most of the worker cooperatives that have been developed in New York in the past few years through the uh, Worker Cooperative Business Development Initiative, which is 13 organizations, including ourselves, funded through the city. Uh, We've been focused on developing cooperatives in low-income, predominantly communities of color, and predominantly uh, focused, kind of default, on women workers in areas like cleaning, child care, uh, elder care, uh, other service industries such as construction, and uh, with kind of a growing focus on conversions as well. How did how did New York get there, or Madison? Do you have any sense of what caused them to put this money together for worker cooperatives? You know, New York got there through, as Auntie said, you know, just looking around and going, what's working here? So the city council had some interest and there were some champions. Um, but really, I think the game changer was were two things. One, we have a strong policy ally in the Federation of Protestant Welfare Agencies. It's a hundred plus year old social service agency in New York City, very large. And they serve uh, low income communities and women primarily and, and families. And they looked around and said, you know, we're seeing the effects of a lack of jobs and the lack of wealth in our communities. What can we do to address the causes? And so they wrote a white paper um, held a big press conference, enlisted some um, political allies, and really drove forward an initiative right as Mayor de Blasio was coming into office to say, yeah, let's address let's address the, the wealth disparities in our communities. Um, and the city council took it up, and they said, that's persuasive. Let's try it. And in part, they looked around and said, look at Cooperative Home Care Associates and what it's been able to do. Look at the Center for Family Life and some of the cooperatives that they created, those cleaning co-ops that move people's wages up substantially. So to have a policy partner who sees worker co-ops as a means to an end, I think is really critical. And then the other piece was there was a local organization forming of co-op members and co-op developers, and they were able to put a human face to this sort of abstract policy initiative and tell their stories. So that was, I think, the real kind of combination. And then Madison said, well, not, we're not going to be outdone by New York City. Okay. They had a mayor and, you know, who took that up and said, we're the, we're the home of cooperatives in the U.S. You know, Wisconsin, upper Midwest has this long tradition. Why aren't we doing something? So I think cities, you know, learn from each other and things can replicate at the city level as word spreads. I'd also heard in Richmond they have a department, if you will, called Richmond Building Wealth. 
Um, so it's a wealth building department. I don't know what's come out of it yet, but I, that was modeled after the book, Cities Building Wealth. So that right. would be interesting to see what they do. I'd also like to see how we could get D.C. and other cities into okay. this conversation. I also was in New York 2011 when, when we went to the United Nations. I represented the housing in that meeting. And the next day there was a meeting for New York cooperative, cooperatives and the city council person spoke. And she said in order to get elected, she knew she had to go to the housing co-ops. So I was also thinking, mm-hmm. what could we do? And I reached out to Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, and I tried to get even to Donald Trump because uh, Hillary and Bernie had cooperatives in their platform on their web pages. They didn't talk mm-hmm. about it. I wanted them to talk about it on stage, but they did not. And that's what I was trying to get because I felt like if they could get the cooperatives out, they could get more votes and perhaps even win. we got to go take our last break, and then we'll come back. This goes by real quick, and I'm really enjoying this conversation. But we'll be right back after the next uh, break. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, W.O. at 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. Melissa, we've talked about cities. We've talked about workers and how they can create wealth, create jobs, and the recent growth in worker cooperatives. There's the principles, the cooperative principles that I like, particularly the fifth principle is education, training, and information. And it sounds like the Institute was started with that principle of making sure that worker cooperatives have knowledge and training. Is that correct? That is correct. And I would say that's our sort of primary sounding mission. But I think we find the principles most powerful when they're combined with one another. So to that principle five, we add principle six because we think principle six is one of the best ways to accomplish that education and training and the actual market building and business relationships that worker co-ops are going to need to succeed. And that's Antu's work. I would love to hear her talk a little bit about our Principle 6 project. But Principle 6 is cooperation among cooperatives. That's right. Sorry, I should have said that. So we got education and then cooperation among cooperatives. Yes. Antu, you wanted to talk about that? So um, Principle 6 is an initiative that we recently launched, um, and it's focused on um, how worker cooperatives and cooperatives, cross-sector cooperatives, can work together and uh, build power, like using their spending power um, and building markets together. So we piloted this in the garment and textile industries with um, several cooperatives in different stages of growth, one being a cut-and-sew cooperative that's well-established in Western North Carolina and a couple of startup screen printing cooperatives here in New York City. And the focus initially was to create a um, transparent and cooperative led supply chain within this industry. So, you know, you have T-shirts where the cotton comes from producer cooperatives in Texas and then gets sewn in North Carolina, printed in New York City, and then you have a product that has a story behind it and really explains the principal six story well through a tangible product. 
So in focusing on this, like we've been developing a network to really allow for market building, going out to aligned uh, communities, whether it's uh, the Park Slope Food Cooperative here in New York City, which has been incredibly supportive of our initiative. They made a, a big investment with us and um, purchased uh, 10,000 units from us. Like, well, we were just getting started. They purchased 10,000 shirts, T-shirts? 10,000 10, bags. Bags, okay. Or yeah, for their for their grocery store, and this is we. It, it actually jump started us because they had been looking for a new product. Um, their bags had previously been uh, just kind of like made in China stuff that they just sort of got off the internet. And this was an initiative that would uh, tell the story of Parks of Food Co-op better in terms of like what they do and their point of difference as a, as you know a grocery store that's member owned but then also help uh, support the development of these uh, new worker cooperatives, screen printing cooperative in New York City that came out of Hurricane Sandy relief, as well as um, supporting the cut and sew worker cooperatives in North Carolina, which is um, immigrant-led. So it's like a really beautiful story of all of these different parts and pieces that are connected to cooperatives, to to cooperative movements in different spaces, regions, and communities coming together to produce the product and um, helping build uh, build a market and build new cooperatives. And it's something that can also be expanded to other industries as well. So, you know, right now, garment and textile industry has kind of happened organically. It's my, um, I previously had worked in the industry, so I had an awareness of, of, of how it worked. But I could see this easily happening in construction. I could see it in, um, I know you have a background in housing cooperatives, you know, housing cooperatives, uh, working with uh, worker cooperative contractors or sourcing materials from producer cooperatives and worker cooperatives like the uh, Windows uh, Factory Cooperative in uh, Chicago, uh, New Era Windows. So there's like all these opportunities to think how we can utilize value chains and these interconnected principles of, of production and give it a cooperative edge to it. It sounds wonderful. Yet all of these different projects going... And I'm just look look like you would be resource constrained. How do you get it all done? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> we, I mean, we have we have the most incredible staff of committed, smart people who can do more with less than uh, anybody I've ever seen. Um, and then I think we could, we'd be remiss not to mention um, we got really early stage funding from the cooperative foundations. The Cooperative Foundation, Cooperative Development Foundation. Um, so our community really helped us get started, and then we leveraged that for additional funds from private foundations, which are making an investment in worker ownership because they see it addressing the issues that they care about. And we also are funded through the USDA's Rural Cooperative Development Grant and the Socially Disadvantaged Groups Grant. So those programs, those federal programs, are really critical to doing a lot of the on-the-ground development work that we do and support, our work couldn't continue without that funding. Um, so I think as, we, as we're looking at the congressional budget process, I want to put in a plug for what you can do with just a very, very tiny part of the federal budget um, has a real impact on the ground. Um, and then I think, you know, the challenge is to sustain this level of investment in the field and to be able to expand it, honestly, because we are but one organization out there doing this kind of innovative, really high impact co-op development work. 
Um, and there's not enough resources, honestly. We need to be mobilizing more. So it's the eternal question. Um, and I think those resources increasingly should come from the cooperative community as we look at cooperation among cooperatives. Let's look at what's actually you know, happening on the ground and where things are making an impact and get some investment from some of the cooperative sectors that have more resources at their disposal. It is an awesome job and task that we have before us. I figured out seven years ago what I want to be when I grow up, and I'm, <laughs> I'm turning 70 this year, okay? And that is to promote and develop co-op because it is an answer to the questions that I've dealt with. Melissa, you went to Stanford. Did you know that Leland Stanford, who started Stanford, also as a senator, wrote laws for worker cooperatives? You know, I learned that after I left Stanford. They don't really teach you that at Stanford. No, and um, I've been trying to get in, in, in front afterwards. of the dean of the business school. The president of Stanford is going to be here in D.C. I really wasn't going to go, but I just decided in reading your thing, I need to go there so I can try to talk to him about this. Great. How to get it into the school system so we can, can teach this model because it is, from my from my view, an answer to our social problems. Yeah. I think that's right. And the more it gets institutionalized in institutions like higher education, even in high schools, um, in city economic development, you know, it needs to become part of the fabric of our society in a really deep way in the air we breathe and not the sort of exotic model that when you mention it, a whole room goes silent. Um, and I think that's what we're working toward. 1,700 people perhaps going silent. And I, when I try to talk to the dean, I got my MBA from Stanford. So when I try to talk to the dean, uh, when I go back for reunions, it was also blank stares. It's like deer in a headlight kind of stuff. So it's we've got a job cut out for us to really get people to understand this model as a model to solve our problems. And it's solving community problems. A guy, the first month that I was on said, co-ops solve community problems. If you don't have a community problem, you don't need a co-op. Uh, he was from Senegal. Um, developing co-ops over there. So it is a model to do that. We only have a couple more minutes left. What do you want to tell people? What do you want to leave people with? I want to leave people with a sense of um, sort of the growing excitement and activity behind employee ownership um, and worker co-ops specifically, um, and an understanding that, that as the sort of wealth inequality in our society deepens, interest in this model expands. And also deepens. And I don't think those are coincidence. I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think that that's a causal relationship. Um, and so we are uh, uh, one of the tools you can use to solve society's problems. And we know that when co-ops work together and that when they work in partnership with other social movements, they can have a kind of power that's pretty unparalleled. And so if you're interested in social problems of any sort, we're interested in talking to you because we think co-ops and worker co-ops in particular are part of the foundation of the answer. And that was Melissa, right? That's right, Melissa. On to, do you have any final words? My interest in cooperatives is uh, all about resiliency and how communities who you would not, you know, who are, kind of, who are underdogs, who don't necessarily have the resources. We think of entrepreneurship as being like you have to be, you know, this really connected kind of like hyper-individualistic, heroic person um, in order to make a business work. And my uh, what, what I love about cooperatives is that it shows that this is not true, that anybody can start a business and that the way to do it is to do it together and how we can pull together our resources 
um, even if we have like, you know, the, the, the cards stacked against us to build something that is long lasting and provides a really positive alternative to, you know, the kind of, um, to, to the sort of the, the culture that we live in that's really focused on uh, the individual and is like facilitating, you know, this great uh, income inequality and um, social gaps that we're seeing. So I see that as kind of like the promise of cooperatives and not, not just a promise, but it's already been proven. Um, so it's up to us to make it happen again. Let's make it happen. You got the last word. Thank you all for being on the show. We'll be back next Thursday. Please live cooperatively. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WO at 95.9 FM.